Hello and welcome to the Millennial Minimalist Podcast. I am your host, Kelly Foss, and together with my co-host, Lauren Morley, our mission is to help you simplify your life and live with greater intention. Together, let's live more with less. Hi, everyone. Today, we are speaking about how to stop overdoing and start embracing your well-being. This conversation is the first half of episode 131, where Lauren and I speak with award-winning journalist, speaker, and author Celeste Headley to share insights from her national bestseller, Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving. Celeste is on a mission to help us break free of our society's unhealthy obsession with busyness and efficiency so that we can reduce feelings of anxiety, work more effectively, and make time for more leisure. Celeste experienced burnout firsthand. In our discussion, she shares how to reverse the behaviors that are making us all sicker, sadder, and less productive. And together, we discuss the societal pressures that cause many of us to feel like we have to do it all, why we should be working smarter, not harder, how making more money does not necessarily equal more freedom, why multitasking does more harm than good, and how making space to do nothing will help us think more creatively, reach deeper focus, and ultimately make us happier. Be inspired to reject the idea that you should constantly be doing and start embracing your well-being so that you can live and perform better. Well, thank you for connecting with us today. We absolutely loved your book. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. Lauren was the first to read your book, Do Nothing. And when she told me the title, I said, wow, I have to read this and, or we need to read this because we have both overworked ourselves. So when we saw the title, we're like, okay, this is a need. This is an important message. And so we're very, very excited to share it with our community today. And you may know that Lauren and I, we help people remove the excess from the lives and we help them live with greater intention once they've removed the clutter. And admittedly, we also found ourselves actually filling in that time back with overworking ourselves. And we almost feel this guilt when we're not working. And it's something that Lauren and I have to continually manage <laughs> every single day and even hopping on a call with each other to remind ourselves to do nothing. And it's, you shouldn't feel guilty and it will actually make you more productive. But anyways, we're excited to get into everything today. Me too. I mean, I got to say, millennials are among the biggest purchasers of the book, which I think is encouraging. (laughs) I think that's a good sign that maybe that generation is realizing how toxic these habits. I'm in, I'm Gen X. So um, maybe the younger generation is beginning to recognize the toxicity of it. So I I like it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for sharing this message because it's super important. We need to hear it. Now, to start our conversation off, can you share your experiences with overwork and how your search for external solutions were leaving you stuck? Yeah, I mean, I I was an overworker as far back as I can remember. And so I, you know, I, I absolutely bought into that idea that if you want to be successful, you have to work for it and that the people who work the hardest will be the most successful, that you'll get rewarded, which is all bunk, by the way. But whenever I had an issue, whether it was financial, whether it was, uh, you know, where I would, wasn't uh, supported at my work, where I wasn't getting the promotions I wanted, I thought the solution was to work harder, to pick up a side gig, to do something else. And so, you know, at the point when I started to get speaking gigs, this is after my TEDx talk went viral, I was just adding those speeches onto my workload that I had already. And I was a single mother at the time still. (laughs) So I was just adding that in that just became a side hustle. 
And then when that became completely unsustainable, I was like, okay, the solution is I'm going to be self-employed. Like I'll just start my own business, you know, and I'll be self-employed and then I'll have complete control over my own schedule and this will all be solved. Uh, that was BS Yeah, <laughs> because I just got busier when you're your own boss, it gets worse. And so that's, the, that's at the point when I started getting sick a lot and I'm an extremely healthy person, that's when I knew, and I was irritable. I was not going to friends birthday parties. Cause I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I have to work. I was turning down things that I would normally think of as fun. I, I was thinking that I didn't have time to meditate, right? Like there's this old Buddhist saying that if you, if you don't have half an hour to meditate, meditate for 15 minutes. If you don't have 15 minutes, then meditate for a half an hour. Um, <laughs> and that's sort of where I was. And that's when I started to realize, okay, something's wrong and I need to figure it out what it is. I know this is a long answer, but just one last thing is that partly because our sexist society has built me up to think this, I immediately thought it was something in me. I immediately thought there was something I was doing wrong that I had to fix myself, right? Like that's why women don't get ahead in business. That's why we're not paid the same, right? Cause we're bad negotiators or we're whatever. I've been programmed to think it's a self, it's a failing of myself. And it, as the research went forward, it turned out to be completely not true. Yeah. There's this idea that as women, we should be able to do it all. Yeah. <laughs> And one of the quotes I love by Joshua Fields Milburn, who's part of the minimalists, he always says we can do everything, but we can't do everything. So we can't do it all. Yes, yeah, absolutely true. And why would you want to? Exactly. Um, I absolutely loved your book. And in the first chapter, you talk about the hedonic treadmill and how we're like constantly chasing after these new things, thinking when I just get here, I'll be happy. When I just get here, I'll be happy. And yet no matter how much we achieve in life, we kind of always fall back to this baseline level of happiness. Can you just talk a little bit about that? I thought it was so interesting. Yeah. It's a coping mechanism because what it's designed to do is help you cope with tragedy and catastrophe so that even if the worst thing happens, the sedonic treadmill will return you to that baseline where, you know, this isn't going to affect the rest of your life. It's like uh, when something awful happens, your brain immediately begins to smear Vaseline on that lens because remembering how bad it was to break your leg would disable you for the rest of your life, right? Emotionally, you can't remember that pain. So it's, it's a coping mechanism in one way, but the thing is it also functions in happiness. So you're like, I can't wait till I get that promotion. Everything's going to be easier. And you actually think through all the scenarios that are going to be easier, how much easier it's going to be. You're, you're imagining all these things that are going to be better when you get the promotion. And maybe for a week or two, you do feel happier. But a couple of weeks later, you will be right back to that baseline of happiness that where you were before. And this is the thing is like, people will read these articles that are like the seven things the happy people do. And that's not how it works. You can adjust that baseline, but it takes time. It takes like really serious monumental changes in the way you live your life every day. It's not going to happen because you got a raise or lost five more pounds. Yeah, exactly. And I love how you were thinking, okay, well, my goal is to make more money. And when I make more money, then I won't be as stressed. And like, this is the solution. And you said, quote, the more money you make, the more likely you will believe that you have no time to waste. And I think a lot of us can relate with that. <laughs> In the first two weeks, you're like, oh yeah, more money, more freedom. Actually, no, you'll be making more and then you'll want to make more and then you'll want to keep doing more. And it seemed like even when after you went freelance, when you thought, oh, well, I can manage my own time now, 
you were still overworking yourself. And so when did you come to this realization that this is just a continual habit loop that I need to change? Yeah. I mean, I, what happened was I, I looked back at my calendar when I, when I started trying to figure out what was going wrong in my life, <laughs> how did I get here? I looked back at my calendar for the next six months and I realized I was traveling. I was doing at least one speech a week, traveling, flying every few days. And then I thought, why am I doing that? And I realized it's because every time I turned, like I would turn down a speech and they'd say, okay, if you don't want to do it for 25, would you do it for 35,000? <laughs> and oh. at some point you're like, I can't, how am I, <laughs> how do I turn down that much money for this speech? Especially when I have employees, some of whom are on commission and they only make money if I go and do a speech. And it just becomes this treadmill, you know, it all, starts with this concept that was born in the industrial revolution that time is money and when time is money when there's an actual dollar value on your time then the more money you make per hour the more expensive it is for you to not be working and that sinks into your subconscious somewhere in our subconscious wiring we know how much we're making and you know one really phenomenal study that that showed this very clearly was the one where they had people sit down and listen to this gorgeous, gorgeous piece of music from, from Lakme. It's called the flower duet, extremely short. It's like maybe two minutes, 10 seconds long. And half of the study participants, they just had them listen to this piece of music and they would came away from it saying, yeah, that was lovely. It was just a nice little beautiful piece. But the other half in the questionnaire before they listened, they asked them how much they made per hour calculate your hourly rate. And those people felt like the music went on too long. Mm. Wow. They're like, this is, this is too long. I'm impatient to get going, blah, 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 blah. Just by being prompted even to think about making money per hour, they couldn't sit for two minutes and 10 seconds and listen to some beautiful music. Yeah. I mean, I believe that there were so many incredible takeaways in your book that made me think, yeah, it's actually okay to step back and reject this idea. You said that our society has been impacted by a virus called the fast life. And I was like, yes, it has. And you know, we, you said that we judge our days by how efficient they are rather than how fulfilling. I was like, wow, that is so true. When someone asks you, how was your day? Oh, I got this done. I got this done. I got this done. But what happened in your day that was super fulfilling? What, you know, even the person on the other end doesn't expect that as a response. So what advice would you give our listeners to help them reject the fast life and also avoid feelings of guilt? So, you know, one of the most important things to do is to stop focusing on these means goals, right? The, all these little tiny things that you put in your bullet journal that you wanna get done, those are important. Absolutely, you need to change the battery and the smoke detector, but that's a means goal, right? That's a means to an end. That the purpose of changing that battery is to keep you safe in case of a fire. What's your life goal? Like at the end of your life, what is it that you want to have accomplished? those end goals are big and vast and they are not measurable you know people keep giving us advice on how to set goals and they're like make it achievable make it measurable i don't want you to to do that i want you to come up with goal, the real goals the ones that you you want to last your lifetime and if that's what you're measuring over the course of the day did i get a little closer to that goal or not like one of my end goals is to to make the world a slightly better place. 
right? I, that's really important to me. And if I get to the end of the day and somebody asks me how my day is, I have to ask myself, did I make the world a slightly better place today? <laughs> or maybe your one of your end goals is to be happy in life. And so you can ask yourself, did I, was I, how many times was I happy today? How many times was I joyful? How many times did I inspire joy in somebody else? And if that's how you're measuring your days, not in the number of tasks you got uh, completed, not how well you ticked the boxes in that checkbox, but in how much closer you got to your big, broad, you know, inspiring goals, it completely changes the perspective of success. Mm, I'm really feeling this. This is so, this is super inspiring. It's so yeah, true. Is- I mean, earlier this morning, I was running on the treadmill. And in that moment, I was actually thinking about everything I want to accomplish in the day. I was just kept thinking about the future. It was giving me anxiety. And I was thinking to myself, no, just be present. This is your first accomplishment of the day and just enjoy this moment. And, you know, now I'm realizing, oh, I should talk about it later. If someone asked me how my day was, it started off great because I went for a run, you know? (laughs) And even change your perspective. I don't, I wouldn't even call it an accomplishment. Like what's the purpose of the treadmill? Mm -hmm. Why do you do it? Right. Mm -hmm. It's so you can be happy and, and healthy, right? It's so you can be healthy, but why, why do you need a healthy body? Right. If you keep asking yourself those whys, why do you need a healthy body? Well, so I can do whatever it is that you like to do. Maybe you like to do sports. Maybe you like to take walks with your dog so I can do these particular things. Okay, why? Why do you want those particular things? If you keep asking yourself why, you will get to your end goal. And maybe your end goal is to have experienced life in as many ways as possible. And in that particular case, in that perspective, that treadmill is not an getting your treadmill is not an accomplishment. That's, that's the journey itself. Mm-hmm. Like that's you experiencing those endorphins. Mm-hmm. Like I try to imagine, can I, am I listening to my body enough to I know the point when the endorphins kick in? Can I be that present with my body that I know at the moment when my, my body clicks over and it starts enjoying the movement rather than me just going, oh God, I got to get on my damn elliptical. I have an elliptical instead. So like that, I, I wouldn't see the exercise and accomplishment because if you see it that way, it's going to become a box in your checklist. Totally. You're making me realize it, it's being rather than doing, as you would say in your book. Yes, absolutely. Be in that treadmill because moving your body feels good once you start it. I mean, it's hard to get on the treadmill. It's hard to get into your workout clothes. That whole prep for it is hard, getting yourself there. But once you're there, like that's the purpose, like there you are, you're doing the thing, like you're being that person that moves their body and feels the endorphins and lifts their spirits. Like, yeah. I'm relating so much to this. I feel like I used to be such a calculated person and just had to like run off my to-do list every single day. And now I'm so much more like, what do you want to do? Like, how do you want to spend your day? Even talking about exercise, I was always like, this is the recommended amount of exercise people should do every day. And this is what gets, but now I'm like, what do you want to do though? Like, don't you want to go for a walk or do this and enjoy it in the moment and enjoy your work? And I feel like I'll, I'll talk to other people and they're like, oh, I have a long day or I have a stressful day. And in my mind, I'm like, 
I'm so lucky. Like I get to podcast and I met with my writing coach this morning. I'm like, I have such a great day lined up. So if you can structure your life like that, it you go so much further and you're so much happier. One of the biggest things I took away from your book, which I always think about when I'm working now is multitasking. And I would always try to do it to the point where I sell real estate by profession. And when I'm making my phone calls while the phone was ringing, I would try to do other stuff because I was bored (laughs) while the phone was ringing. And I read in your book that it actually kills gray matter in your brain. So if you can talk about that, this was probably my biggest takeaway of how I'm like permanently damaging my brain by multitasking. I mean, I used to be so part of the cult of multitasking that I would put it on my resume under special skills. Like I considered to myself (laughs) to be just the master multitasker. So it was upsetting to me to realize I have probably shrunk my gray matter through trying to multitask. We think that multitasking saves us time. We think that doing something else while you're waiting for the phone to ring, we're like, oh, we're getting two things done at once. But it doesn't pass the smell test. When we actually test this to see if people who are trying to do this are getting two things done at once, they're not. They're actually going more slowly. Why? Because you're doing both things badly. Now, waiting while you're ringing on the phone, the reason that doesn't work is because it's not long enough of a time for you to focus Mm. on something else. That's one of the biggest things. If you are doing something that's relatively mindless, like folding your clothes, then you're okay. You know, you're fine. I listen to podcasts while I'm gardening. Totally okay. But pretty much anything else, you're A, you're wasting time because the work you're doing is full of errors. It's not nearly as innovative as creative. But even worse for me as like a creative person, and frankly, real estate is a creative industry, um, you are never reaching deep focus. You're never reaching that point where you can actually tap into the most creative parts of your mind. And and then what's the point, right? Then that your job could be done by literally anybody else if, it, if you're just going by rote and, and making errors all the time. In order for you to be you at your best, you need to tap into that deepest part of your brain, the, the inner workings of your brain where the outer folds of your brain have a chance to weigh in, the executive function, the analytical parts of your brain, the part of your brain that brings all the experience and insight to bear. And for that to happen, you have to allow your brain to focus. And human beings can't focus on more than one thing at once. Pigeons can. Pigeons can multitask. (laughs) Human beings can't. Yeah. It makes me think of how I think there is a part also in your book where you talk about how when we do multitask, especially at work, it will actually carry on to the rest of our day, even in our personal life. And then we're not present with the people around us because our mind is everywhere. It's not used to just focusing on one thing, one person at one time. So it can negatively affect our cognitive function in every way, (laughs) not just while we're working. Yeah, this was a surprise. So the scientists who studied one, there's two wrinkles here that affect what you just said. One is that the more you try to multitask, the worse you, you get at doing more than one thing at once or focusing in. This surprised the scientists who expected to find that those who were the most practiced at this were going to be better at switching their focus very quickly. It's the opposite. They are worse at it. The other thing which you also alluded to is the fact that trying to multitask is extremely demanding 
and it causes a lot of anxiety and weariness in your brain. Your brain can't do it. And so it's trying to carry out your orders and it's just failing all over the place. And so it raises your cortisol level, your stress hormone. It raises your heart rate. It puts you in this state of crisis constantly. And so you have spent the entire day in this very stressful frame of mind. And then when you get home, of course you're exhausted. Of course you can't, you don't have the patience and the temperament to deal with whatever's happening at home. Of course, you're going to snap at people. Of course, your friend is going to call and you're going to reject that phone call and send them a text that say, what's up, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Because you don't have the energy. You have been stressed out and exhausted all day long. So yeah, the multitasking on a number of different levels, it just needs to stop. We have to stop. We have to close out. You know, I'll go by people's desks and I'll see like a hundred tabs open. And I'm like, what are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing? Yeah. That would make Lauren go crazy. (laughs) Oh my God. I'm a one tab person. (laughs) (laughs) So, so speaking of this, so can you describe the moment that you were introduced to the slow movement or the, the point where you realized I can't do this anymore and how you started to incorporate slow living into your work life? Um, So part of it was when I was writing a book. So I had told myself my whole life I was never writing a book. And people would ask me, are you going to write a book someday? And I'd be like, no, I am not. And writing a book was a completely new, you know, look, I'm a broadcast journalist. So I've spent 25 years writing five minute pieces. (laughs) That's what I've spent. (laughs) And I've gotten really good at it. And so writing a a 70,000 word book I could not, I couldn't, I simply could not meet my deadline without changing my habits. I had to be able to focus. And so it was experimentation for me. It's like how this isn't working. This isn't working. Maybe I'll turn on classical music. Nope. So I, I was, it was trial and error. And because it wasn't working for me, I would go back to the best research I could find on how do we reach deep focus. And over the course of that research, that's how I came upon the slow movement because the slow movement isn't necessarily about focus, but it it really is, right? Like it started with cooking and I think that then it moved into fashion. But if you think about cooking, cooking requires you to go slowly, right? You're gonna cut your finger if you are going too fast while you're dicing onions. Cooking requires that if you're going to do it well, you slow down. We all have screwed up in the kitchen. Everyone has screwed up in the kitchen because they missed a step because they forgot to put in an ingredient, because they accidentally put in salt instead of sugar (laughs) or baking soda or whatever, everyone has. And so we have learned the hard way that when you speed up, you're gonna grab that pan in the oven and forget that you don't have a hot pad on your hands or whatever it may be. Cooking is such a good reminder of why you have to go slowly that when I started reading about the slow movement, I was like, well, this is it. Like, this is why I can't focus is because I'm, I have this deadline in front of me and I've, I've done the right thing according to 21st century productivity, right? I've, I'm like, okay, here's how many words I have to write and here's how long I have to write it. And that means I have to have write this many words every day and blah, 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 blah. Really, it's about each step. It's here's, you, you're going to whip the cream until it's ready. There's no set amount of time you can whip cream. You, you whip the cream until it's fluffy, <laughs> right? And it's the same thing with a book. Like you have to slow down and watch what you're doing. You finish a chapter when the chapter's done. There's no exterior 
measure that can tell you when you're done writing that chapter. And so that's how the slow movement sort of really captured me. And it, it just made, it made so much sense. And especially when it comes to like climate change and you start reading about slow fashion, right? And a slow transportation. Slow is so much closer to the real rhythm of the earth. And we are part of that, right? We have artificially tried to speed up but we're not computers. Like we can't break our, our lives down to a nanosecond. We need to be in rhythm with the seasons and the rising of the sun. And that means we have to slow down just, just a little. And arguably I've heard that if you are too busy and living a really, really fast paced life, it means that you are not prioritizing well. <laughs> so people can see it that way. And so well, you, we all have the same number of hours in a day. And we always think that, again, as you said in your book, we're obsessed with time. We feel like there's not enough time. And if, you know, someone has enough time, then what are they doing? You know, what are they doing with their life? It's like, no, yeah, that's, exactly. actually a, yeah. that's actually a good thing. And it makes your work better. I'm sure you can all relate to this idea of, having three tasks on your plate and realizing, okay, what's the most important? So you focus on that. And then you think, okay, well, maybe I can get it done tonight. Even though I don't need to get it done tonight, I could do it tomorrow. And then you realize, oh yeah, I should do it tomorrow because I'll be more efficient and my head will be in the right place and it's worth it. And so in your book, you talk about how you cut down the number of hours you work a week and you said that your focus in your productivity rose. And so that's fascinating to me. Yeah, it's so funny because interviewers always think they're asking me a gotcha question because <laughs> they're like, <laughs> you wrote this whole book about doing nothing and I'm looking over your resume and you've done a ton of things. I'm like, yeah, but here's the thing. <laughs> I screw off every day. <laughs> like I do absolutely nothing. I make ugly baking products because I like to bake and I don't make pretty food. I have ridiculous number of houseplants, like a really an extreme like excessive number of houseplants that have no, f serve no purpose. They will never be on Instagram. You know, I sit and watch the birds at the bird feeder every morning. And because I do that, I'm in a more relaxed frame of mind. So when I sit down to work, I'm ready. My mind is fresh. I'm not pushing myself. I freaking hate that phrase, rise and grind. Oh my God, it needs to die in a pit of flames. <laughs> But they always think it's that this gotcha question. But the truth is, is that when you actually allow yourself to embrace well-being and what that looks like for you, you're more productive because your time spent working is actually producing something, not just checking off a list, but getting something done and at a high level. You know, when I sit down to work, I know exactly how much, I, and I'm very aware of my brain. When I get to the point where I'm starting to get distracted, I know it's time to get up. I'm not gonna force my brain to try to focus because it's literally counterproductive. And I I know that sounds like, you know, you know, the studies that come out and say, drink more wine and eat more chocolate, it's good for you. Like, you're always like, there's a catch, like this isn't real. I know that's what it sounds like, but it's totally true. <laughs> You know, you have to understand, you have to know yourself well enough that you know what well being looks like. And then you have to find ways to maintain that well being. It's not going to look the same for everybody. Mm -hmm. It's just not. 
you know, for me, I get up early. That doesn't mean that somebody else needs to get up early in order to have well being. That's why I hate those lists that say the nine things successful people do. And then everybody tries to emulate those nine things that may not work for you. Doing someone else's list is probably not going to work for you. You're a different person. And that's how you will eventually become more productive. That can't be your goal. Your goal has to be your own well being. But the byproduct is you will get more done. And what's interesting is that actual ability to focus, like you were talking about, is not that long of a span. Like I look at people who work 12 or 14 hour days, like my boyfriend will leave at 8 a.m. and come back at midnight. And I'm like, did you work that whole time? You said in your book, some of the greatest minds in history is like uh, or history, Charles Darwin, Charles Dickens. They only worked a portion of the day. Like they weren't working like four all hours. day. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, like some of the most productive people of all time, Henri Poincaré, who mo- a lot of people don't know, but was ridiculously productive. Um, there's a great book called Rest uh, by Alex Pang, and he actually went through people's days and and measured this out. And he has a massive list of people who worked somewhere between three to five hours a day. But realistically, and you say this in your book too, people like the two worlds coming together, like maybe we're at work, but we're booking dentist appointments or so like, maybe we actually are just working that much. We just stay at the office that long because, you know, you said that work is measured in time, not quality. Yeah, but it's really unfortunate because another thing I cite in there is they did a survey of thousands of employees and well over 90% of them said they never engage in deep work. Well, and it's part of what you're talking about. We are required to sit at our desks. Our, our, our bosses will reward us for having our butts in those seats longer. And so of course we have to do our shopping while we're at work. When else are we going to do it? So it all gets messed up and we're multitasking and we're buying a flight for, for to, to go on vacation at the same time that we're on a conference call, which means we're not paying attention to either one, which means we're not actually getting stuff done. And then you get to the end of your day and someone says, hey, do you have that memo written? And you're like, no, <laughs> I don't. If we would just do one thing at a time and we would stop measuring people's days according to how many hours they were there, but whether they got their job done, we would be, fin- you know, I, I am, have been an executive producer at various times in my life, and I would have to force my mostly millennial staff to leave. I would literally have to go out there and I would say, I'm your boss, and I'm telling you, get up and leave. That's how ingrained this idea is that you're a good worker if you're working for longer. And I would say to them, look, you're not helping yourself. If your job is so taxing that it takes you 12 hours a day, um, then I need to know that. I don't want you to cover for it. I need the, I need it to fail so I can say, look, this is t- there's too much of a job for one person. I don't want you to hurt yourself getting what something done that can't be done by one person. So get up and, and leave, <laughs> please. And w- this is kind of like, I've, I kind of wish that I could, I could be that person for the entire country right i need to be used to imagine celeste standing over your shoulder going get up now (laughs) get up you're not focusing anymore you need to stand up go take a walk 
That is great. I mean, one of the reasons why I left the corporate world and became an independent contractor is for that reason. I I didn't love the idea of being measured by how many hours I was in the office. I actually didn't get my best work done in the office ever. I would bring it home most of the times and I would get my deep work done at home. Now that everything's at home, I find that I'm much more productive. And, and now that I manage my own projects, it's, it's all about it's the measuring stick is around the completion of the project versus the number of hours that I'm working, so to speak. And, but the problem with, I think our workforce today is that the workforce says, Hey, if you work more, then you can make more. And so we're like, okay, the more I work, then I'm just going to make more money, which will ultimately make me happy. And it's, it's all a lie. (laughs) It is. It's all a lie. People who work excessive hours and I think this is in the book only make on average like six or 7% more. And not only that, but the WHO just came out with groundbreaking research, which was came, you know, I, I didn't include in the book because it just came out showing they, they link as a cause, not correlation, but as a cause overwork to early death. Mm-hmm. Literally working too many hours will kill you (laughs) and so and then they list you know as an it was a massive massive study um and they list all the reasons for it so not only a not only are you not going to make more money you're just not on average um not only is it not going to make you happier there's ridiculous sheaves and sheaves of, of research studies showing it will actually make you miserable but it will your your life will be shorter i mean when we talk about end goals is that what we want we want a shorter life does anybody want that yeah so it's it's it you're right it is 100 percent a lie and it it is a it is an intentional lie this is one of the things that i tried to track in the book was the fact that this is not some accident we didn't as a as a species decide for ourselves that we wanted to work ridiculous amounts of hours we have been manipulated and coerced and forced into being this way and it's going to take nothing short of a revolution to change the system, which means we as a as a generation need to say, no, we're not killing ourselves so that you can have someone's butt in your seat. It's not helping you and it's definitely not helping me. So no, <laughs> that's what has to happen. Thank you for listening. If you are someone who feels stressed or overwhelmed by daily demands, I hope that this conversation with Celeste has left you feeling inspired to slow down and embrace your well-being. And if you enjoyed this discussion and want to hear more, please click the link in the show notes to find our original hour-long conversation in episode 131, where we further discuss how to set boundaries with your time, why it's important to say no and put your happiness first, and how we can use our technologies with greater intention and more. And as always, you can follow us at Millennial Minimalist on Instagram and Facebook, and you can learn more about us, our closet decluttering e-guide, and our weekly group and one-on-one virtual closet decluttering courses on our website at mastersimplicity.com, which you can also find in our show notes. And lastly, I want to say a big thanks to those of you who have written us a kind five-star reading and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Your reviews help us bring on more exciting guests like Celeste, and they motivate us to keep going. So thanks again for listening, and I will speak with you next week. Bye-bye.